Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, March 12th, and we're talking consumer goods. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined in studio by Motley Fool contributor Dan Klein. How are you doing, Dan? I'm good, Nick. How are you? I'm doing great, Dan. Good to have you in the D.C. area once again. You've returned from yet another trip to Vegas. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how was your trip? You know, what, what, uh, what, what went on there? So I went, as, as some of you Industry Focus fans know, to Shop Talk uh, with Matt Frankel, another Industry Focus uh, frequent guest. And that's a retail show that really draws some heavy hitters. A lot of the keynotes are CEOs or CFOs, COOs. And it's really a showcase for technology. Um, so this year, and we'll talk about this later in the show, I thought of it as sort of the democratization of some pretty high-end technology, meaning that things that used to really only be available to Amazon, Walmart, Target, companies that created it, now you are seeing like off-the-shelf versions of it. So you're starting to see technology that was once really hard to come by work a little bit like the way you know the cloud does, where just like any company can jump in, and we'll talk about all the different things that are being offered. But it was a really interesting place to be. Yeah, Dan, excited to hear your thoughts about these new developments in retail on the second half of the show. But first off, we're going to talk about some news, uh, particularly in the restaurant and retail space. Later on, we're going to talk about JAB Holdings rumors that they're going to spin off their coffee and restaurant chains into two separate IPOs. But first, we have some news out of Papa John's Pizza. Papa John's has been in the news over the last year in a, in a very public battle with their founder and largest shareholder, Papa John Schnatter. This past week, we got some news about uh, that conflict between Papa John's and uh, Papa and the Papa John. <laughs> Dan, can you talk to us about what that news was? Well, Papa John was suing his namesake company because he was somewhat forced out of his role as executive chairman and really forced out of day-to-day -day operations, along with things like he was entitled to office space, he had certain levels of control. All of those things were kind of kicked to the side, and the company had adopted, uh, let's call it a poison pill, to make sure that he wasn't the person that bought the company when, for a while, they were looking to be sold. Now they've taken $200 million from Starboard, uh, and they're not so much on the market. So the two got together. And to make this all awkward, Papa John was still on the board. So imagine, I'm sure you have someone like this in your family, someone who is suing everybody else but still comes to Thanksgiving. Right, I, I can make the relationship extra complicated, and you know when you have a company who, whose name is synonymous with Papa John, it's in the name, uh, and with him still being the largest shareholder, you know, uh, agitating for changes within the company. Uh, this is a significant development because now Papa John no longer being on the board, no longer has a formal relationship with the business outside of his share so, position. So that so. that was the settlement. Papa John agreed to drop his lawsuit. Resign from the board. He will have a role in choosing the independent director that replaces him. I, they didn't quite spell it out, but I think they need to agree. So, whoever that person is. But Papa John owns 26% of the company, and they have removed the poison pill. So, yes, he's gone, but if the stock continues to stumble... Uh, I think there's every chance he tries to buy it back, and it and it becomes sort of a, a battle, but at least a battle where he has recused himself from being on the board and sort of voting on his own proposals. 
Right. And this is going to be an interesting battle. You know, Papa John's has struggled, you know, recently, you know, out of the controversy that, you know, Papa John himself uh, may have contributed to. We've seen EPS trade down almost 50 percent in the past year. You you mentioned to me before the show, their same store sales have declined 8.1 percent in the most recent quarter and 7.3 percent for the full year. So as we see, you know, maybe Papa John's being back on the market for sale, maybe Papa John Schnatter playing a role in this. Uh, it's going to be some near uh, near term news uh, around that transaction. But we have to question what's going on with the brand because when so, the go ahead. I think the Papa John controversy just sort of accelerated some of the brand problems because if you look at who are they competing with, they are competing with Domino's. They are competing with more expensive pizza that has moved into the better space that Papa John's is always trying to sort of falsely stake out. Like maybe it's better than Domino's or I don't know, Elio's in your frozen pizza, but they are facing a ton of competition. But what Domino's does exceptionally well is execute. You can get a Domino's pizza inexpensively, quickly, through a variety of different platforms. They have a really easy to use app. They're easy to call up and order from. And Papa John's had not brought its technology about. They were sort of relying on this like Hey, we're better. So, you know, better pizza, better ingredients. What scares me is that the chairman of the board continues to say we want to focus on better pizza, better ingredients, though the CEO does talk about how they need to improve their app, they need to get their technology better. They need to make it as easy to get a Papa John's pizza as it is to get a Domino's pizza, because you're not ordering either of those pizzas because they're good pizza, unless you're 11. Right, Dan, and we were we were chatting about about this, uh, you know, before we started recording, and I may get Austin Morgan to jump in uh, and get, give us his thoughts on this. But we've kind of seen in recent years, as you mentioned, Papa John's brand was built around the better ingredients, better pizza mentality, and when we've had all these new places come in, you know, local operators that are selling quality pizza, it's just going to be it's been, been very difficult. For Papa John's to differentiate itself on quality, and meanwhile, we've seen Domino's and Pizza Hut and these others really push towards the whole concept of convenience and low prices, which is going to attract you know the customers that are that are buying from these large pizza chains. You know, Austin, uh, when's the last time you ordered from Papa John's, and you know how has your pizza buying experience changed maybe in recent years? You know, the, I think the only time I ever really order Papa John's is when I'm having a bunch of people over and the Nats or Caps won by. Four or whatever the deal is to get that Caps 50, Nats 50, and I'm only paying half price. That's the only time I order Papa John's. <laughs> right, because because it's cheap. You know what I mean? When you're talking about these Papa John's, Domino's folks, uh, pizza, uh, you know, pizza Hut, throw Pizza Hut in there as well, it, it just seems they're all really competing on the factor of convenience as and price, and it's just really difficult to differentiate yourself from a quality perspective these days. Dan, what do you think about, you know, with Papa John himself, Papa John Schnatter, Leaving his formal role with the business and these questions around the brand, you know, I, what are your what are your thoughts on Papa John's moving forward over the next couple of years? I would rebrand. I don't think there's any positive equity in the Papa John's name. I think as long as you can move your your anyone who has your app into the new name, which is obviously easy enough to do, I would focus on execution and make that part of the name. Quick pizza, speedy pizza, like you know, whatever, because. I don't believe a $5.99 pizza or a $6.99, whatever it is, can be as good as all of these sort of 20 to 50 location, fast, casual, make your own pizza. And in most cases, you know, 
blank town house of pizza is better than Domino's or better than Papa John's. They're just not particularly good at delivery or execution or answering the phone. So everything about this has to be making the brand something that matters to consumers. And and Domino's has shown that quality is not the key ingredient. You can't go below a certain level, you know, and maybe they should promote, hey, we're going to redo our pizza recipe, much like Domino's did a few years ago. And I would argue they made their pizza different, not necessarily better. And then really try to get away from this, this Papa John's. I don't think the ads they're running now where to sort of combat the, the controversy, they're just showing all the different owners and how diverse they are. I don't think that speaks to the average consumer who just remembered that they got Domino's because they could press a button and get Domino's. They didn't really follow the, the business page controversy of this. Right. I, I think it's definitely going to be an interesting story to continue to follow. You know, for investors, resolving this conflict with, with uh, you know, Mr. Schnatter really maybe is a break in the clouds, at least from, from what we've seen kind of tarnishing the stock, you know, over the past year. However, there are some real questions about even notwithstanding all the issues around the Papa John, whether the brand Papa John can really position you know, its pizza and its restaurants for success moving into the future, definitely going to be something to continue to watch. I think, and as a final thought, we talked about this yesterday when we were preparing the show. One of the drags on Papa John's that doesn't get talked about is they tend to, and this is anecdotal, be in sort of lesser locations than Domino's is. So as we have this sort of retail space crunch, Maybe they were in the OK Plaza that had a couple of vacancies. Now that plaza is like a chiropractor and a Papa John's, whereas Domino's is in the plaza that has the CVS and the other thriving businesses. So I think there might just be a whole retail shakeout where they have to look at their portfolio and maybe reconsider, you know, consider relocating some stores. And investing. I mean, Domino's is redoing a lot of its stores, and they look a lot nicer. Papa John's has a pretty dated look if you visit their stores. Right. This is a very competitive industry, Pizza. I think for our listeners, we've kind of painted painted the picture that way. <laughs> Particularly when it comes to you know, Domino's, like you said, has made some really significant investments in you know bringing up to date on their technology and their locations. That you know, Papa John's is going to have to match serve. So. Something to continue to follow. This is a really important brand. I don't think it's a brand that's going to disappear overnight. However, there are some real questions here in the near term. Uh, talking about some other brands that folks, you know, would be very familiar to folks. Let's talk about what's going on with JAB Holdings. And in the past couple weeks, we've got some news out of JAB Holdings. And just for, for investors that may not be familiar, JAB Holdings is a private company that owns major stakes in a lot of uh, consumer and restaurant retail brands, things like Panera, uh, Krispy Kreme, Donuts, Keurig, Dr. Pepper. And they are considering over the next one to three years spinning out their restaurant and coffee brands into two separate IPOs. So, Dan, you know, just instant analysis when we when we see rumors of this news taking place, what are your thoughts and what should investors be paying attention to? So JAB has been rolling up brands and kind of doing nothing with them. So they bought they own Panera outright. They own Krispy Kreme outright. I can see the reason why they're not selling Krispy Kreme donuts in Panera. On the other hand, we've talked about they own I don't know the exact number, but let's call it 20 different coffee brands. Pete's, Douay Egver, uh, Tassimo. All. And when you walk into a Panera, Panera still has generic coffee service. Do you know anyone who has the fondness for Krispy Kreme coffee in that, that, say, a Dunkin' fan has for Dunkin' Donuts coffee? 
No, no, I don't. You go to Krispy Kreme to get the donuts, and and you know we were talked before that you know they have a very narrow product offering outside uh, you know of their donuts. It's coffee, milk, water. That's about it. They haven't you know used these opportunities to create synergies between the brands. So so logically, even if you don't change the Krispy Kreme offering, at least brand it. You know, have it be Dewey Egg Ver beans or whatever, and and get that cross branding. But logically. Panera sort of has like an espresso coffee and like a fake frappuccino. Make that something. Mm-hmm. Now the challenge, and we talked about this, and it, it, it in my opinion impacts an IPO, is that the value of any coffee brand that isn't Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts is very questionable. And the argument I made for this is, as some of you know, Capital One has opened cafes. Inside the Capital One cafe is Pete's, which is a JB Holdings brand. The Pete's Cafe is not really supposed to be a moneymaker. It's supposed to drive the banking business. So at my Pete's on Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 9 to 10, coffee is free if you have a Capital One card. What do you think a store should be like when it's three doors down from a Starbucks and it's offering free espresso brace drinks? How would you expect the store to be? Yeah, you know, you would hope that the, the <laughs> company selling free coffee would have have some significant traffic right next to the store uh, selling coffee. But my my guess is that the 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 actual outcome was not consistent with that. There's almost never someone else in line. And on a regular day, at any point, if you have a Capital One card, it's 50% off. The prices are already a tiny bit lower than Starbucks. So let's say with 50% off, you're maybe at like 55, 60 compared to a Starbucks. And I have to admit, I'm guilty of this. These these are stores that I, you can see one from the other, more or less. I still go to Starbucks four days out of five. It's And I'm not even saying that's some sort of weird training. But there is a lot for JAB to sort of roll up here. And if they IPO, I think you'll see those brands being used smarter. But what's interesting is doing a restaurant brands and doing a coffee brands takes away the incentive for some of those. You know, they've been testing Einstein Brothers uh, Caribou Coffee, which are both their brands. And the way they do it is sort of clumsy, but at least you get the exposure for, for the products of both. If those are in separate IPOs, Different, you know, maybe they'll have similar management structures. So a lot of questions uh, about what they're going to do. Right, Dan, and uh, you know, we, we're not exactly sure the form this IPO is going to take. It, it's, it's several years away. I will say the the purpose behind this IPO would be more to cash out for the owners of JB more so than to maybe create value on the public markets. And that raises the question that. You know, if JAB is selling these to kind of kind of get some cash uh, uh, for its owners, who is going to operate these businesses? And whoever is going to operate these businesses is going to be tasked with, as we mentioned, Dan, making these these brands work together in a way that they kind of sing and create more value than each brand does by itself. And we have some question marks. There. I would think there's going to be some divestitures. So on the restaurant side, Panera, Krispy Kreme, even Einstein Brothers Bagels, kind of all serve different segments. So maybe you do some cross-pollination of those stores where there's a you know a nice Panera section in the in the Krispy Kreme. Maybe not. Maybe you sell Krispy Kreme donuts in your Einstein Brothers bagels. But on the coffee side, I would think that they can do what Starbucks did with Tazo and say, these are our, this is gonna be our brand. These are gonna be the, the premium, this is the consumer, this is the mid-level, this is the one we sell to restaurants, and then these are the four extra we don't need. And either rebrand those products into things that they're already carrying or sell those brands off. 
Sure. And Dan, you're a guy that, you know, really likes his coffee and is, you know, really more, more so than, 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 you know, almost anybody I know is really passionate about it. You have all the different, you know, coffee maker products. And this this includes Keurig, Dr. Pepper, as well as lots of other brands that we mentioned. As you look out, you know, assuming this IPO takes place of the coffee brands, where are you expecting these brands to fit into the market? And are you bullish on their prospects if they do end up existing on their own, that they can really carve out a niche for them that, that it can grow over time? Or what are your thoughts there? So, this is theoretically the Pepsi of coffee brands mm-hmm. that if you're going to have Starbucks and you're going to have an alternative, there is Duncan is playing in that space. Uh, Pete's, which is a JAB brand, is trying very hard at retail to play in that space. But would you bet on Duncan, which already has all of these deals, which has the great retail exposure, which is in airports and convenience stores, or would you bet on this sort of third company? So it pushes the top JB brand into kind of the royal crown position. Mm-hmm. And when was the last time you went to a 7-Eleven and saw RC Cola in the it's not there. It's a niche player. So Maybe they can compete in some of the restaurants where restaurants that compete with Starbucks are not necessarily going to want to have branded. But look how many hotels and other places just sort of reflexively are Starbucks licensees. Even if they don't have a Starbucks store, they still say, we proudly brew Starbucks coffee. I'm not so sure they're going to be eager to replace that with, we proudly brew Douay Eggver, which it's hard to pronounce and nobody knows what it is. Right. So uh, for our listeners, it definitely, you know, these brands that we're super familiar with coming onto the market can definitely create some opportunities to folks and get us excited. And I, I'll be excited to see, you know, whenever we see the S1 for these new IPOs, really what the strategy is behind the companies, you know, and what opportunities they see for expansion. But I think there are some question marks as to, you know, how these brands are going to fit together as public companies, who is going to run them, and then really, what the opportunity is for upside over the long term. Any, any going away thoughts, Dan? I will say on the coffee side, there is the upside that it seems like their stake in Carrick Dr. Pepper, which is a controlling share, I don't remember the exact amount, would be rolled into the Call It Coffee platform company. So then they would be able to leverage the Carrick machine and all of the different. And while I don't see Carrick you know, freezing out Starbucks anytime soon, they might not play with as many of the third party people if they can offer a robust choice within their own brand family. I still think this should be one company with the best assets combined in the best ways possible instead of two companies, but I wasn't asked. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll see we'll see uh, how things play out when these companies roll off by themselves and uh, And just maybe, so you know the timing on this is 1 to 2 years. Yep. So we are jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah. So so definitely something to continue to watch and it's something we're going to follow up on, I'm sure, whenever we get more details. Now, Dan, we teased this off the top of the show. I want to talk a little bit now about Shop Talk where you visited in Vegas last week. Um, you know, first off the bat, you know, you mentioned some of the, some of the trends coming out of the conference off the top of the show. What got you most excited that you saw at Shop Talk last week? So you can see now that the retail space has fragmented, and I don't want to say winners and losers, but there's the big boys and everybody else. And by big boys, I mean there's Amazon, there's Target. There's Walmart. There's a couple of major grocery chains. There's maybe one or two outliers like Costco that don't have to play in the same sandbox as everybody else. But then almost every other retailer, 
lacks the resources to innovate. Right. And Walmart can have, which calls itself a technology company as often as it calls itself a retailer, can invent the in-store kiosk and play with it and test it over a year. Target can buy shipped and figure out same-day shipping. Amazon obviously has, you know, trying out drones and who knows what level of AI technology to predict that, you know, you don't even know this, Nick, but tomorrow you want uh, blueberry scones and one will be sitting on your desk when you get there. Other so at the show, I saw a lot of third parties, technology companies, that were offering technology that I hate to say looked at what Walmart, Target, and Amazon have done right. And they copied it. There were kiosks, you know, white label kiosks you could buy to put in your store. Uh, I was really interested in a company that offered flexible warehousing space sold like the cloud. Meaning, if you and I want to bring in a container of uh, Motley Fool harmonicas to try to sell at Christmas time next year, I'm not sure we'd be allowed to do that. But if we did, we could rent the warehouse space and literally only pay for it while we were using it and only for the services we needed. So if we needed shipping, that would be there. If we needed unpacking or all the customs work, or if we just needed a place to put our box, you could get that on the sort of same way you pay for the cloud, which is kind of a consumption model. I saw things like that for trucking, for payment, to give smaller players flexibility. One of the examples I'll give uh, came from meeting with, with, with Flex, the, the warehouse company. A home improvement chain, say Ace Hardware, which is effectively a regional buying group, could look and say, I were a national buying group. I want to have a bunch of rock salt and snowblowers in New England because it's winter. And they only need those there for a few months. They're going to sell out. They know they don't have to cram them in the back of their stores or leave tractor trailers in their parking lot or rent ridiculously expensive warehouse space. So there's a lot of tools that allow you and I, not you and I, but Mon Pa retailer and Macy's and just pretty big chains to do what Amazon and Walmart do sort of on like a six-month trailing basis, which if employed correctly – could make more companies competitive, at least in some places. Right, and this is a trend. You know, we're, we're really starting to see. You mentioned cloud, where you know these resources, whether whether for cloud, it's you know uh, you know computer operating uh, bandwidth, or for logistics, it's access to trucking and and warehouses. These things that up to today would have required a significant fixed cost investment that really block them off to folks outside of really the largest folks in these industries. But now, we're seeing these companies rise up to really provide those those uh, offerings at a, at a lower cost to the also-rans in these industries, like you mentioned, yeah, Dan, I mean, which we, is really we, exciting. We talked about it as we prepped the show. It used to be that only a Starbucks could have a an app as sophisticated as they do that lets you order in mobile payment. Well, there's white label apps that do that now, that any restaurant can offer that. Gift cards used to be something that a regular retail store could only do in a physical format. They could not do in the digital tracking. Well, that's available. At ShopTalk, you really saw like very high-end trucking solutions uh, where you know a company could could manage all its orders and instead of just working with three or four partners, they could find the exact best partner for every place something was going to go to and know which of their warehouses to ship it out of, which of their stores, all of the – and do things as inexpensively as possible. And you might never get as cheap as Amazon gets it. You're never going to have the scale. But you know, if Amazon is 60% of the market – and somebody can roll up through all these small companies, 10%, 15%, it at least gives you the critical mass to be in the ballpark. Right. And so, Dan, when you look at 
the opportunities that this new technology is going to open up and these new offerings for, from the startups that you spoke with at, at Shop Talk, is this something where it's going to let these companies really come up and challenge Amazon's position? Or is this something that really is just going to let these smaller players continue to exist in this new normal uh, of retail? Continue to exist and in some cases compete well. So I live in a market where Publix is everywhere. It's a privately held grocery store chain. There's one every mile and a half in Florida. And Publix can probably not invest the same amount of money as Walmart in automating grocery delivery. And they certainly aren't going to spend the money doing it to figure out if people want grocery delivery. So as the bigger companies establish the market, one of the companies I saw that I know Matt talked about yesterday was offered a 10,000-square-foot back-of-the-store solution where you could take existing floor space and put in this automated, cart-driven grocery picker, some human labor, but takes a lot of the cost out of it, and you could, from one store, service a whole region. Well, if Walmart proves and Target prove that this market I'm in wants two-hour grocery delivery, then that investment can be made by Publix without them having to research it, without them having to invent the wheel themselves. That is a huge way to stay competitive. I don't think consumers, as technology is sort of getting tested, like I use Instacart and I get two-hour delivery all the time, but I don't think that's the norm in my market. So it's not like you're going to walk into a grocery store and be like, oh, you don't have two-hour delivery, I'm leaving. But at some point, that might be the expectation, and they'll be able to offer all of these tools. Sure. And so that answers the question, kind of what role these tools and these startups might play to the businesses that are already operating and competing against Amazon and Walmart. And then the follow-up question I have for you is, is for these startups themselves and the companies developing this technology, as we look out into the future, is this going to be something that investors might have an opportunity to invest in in the public markets? Or do you think these startups are going to be acquired by these kind of middle-tier businesses and be kind of uh, attached onto these existing businesses to make them be able to compete more closely uh, with Amazon and Walmart? Or do you think these companies are going to exist on their own? So, if I was Amazon and Walmart, I would have been walking around these startup areas in Shop Talk, and there were a couple of them. I would have been walking around with a checkbook and trying to take players out of the game uh, and have some of this technology, put it into my incubation system, and see what lives and what doesn't. Some of the more mature companies, like the, the, the grocery store fulfillment company that I was talking about before, which actually has a, a customer, not a customer, customers and product in the field, I think their goal is to be bought. Uh, ideally, they're going to be bought by one of the big boys, because that's where the, the biggest money is. But if you make in-store kiosks, and the whole retail market decides that buy online, pick up in-store via a kiosk is the way to go, what's your total market? 60,000 stores, 30,000 stores, 100,000, I don't know the number, but it is a very finite market. And once you've sold that product, you become like the company like Brunswick. You sell the bowling lane, and then you sell them, I don't know, alley wax and repairs until you invent something else. It's a very tough business to be in. So, yes, I think they're all hoping Amazon buys them. Yeah, it's it's an exciting area of the market to watch because it's still developing. I mean, the whole idea of e-commerce and and you know online ordering is only you know still twenty a little over twenty years old, and so we're still seeing businesses adapt to kind of play in in this market. Dan, as you know, based on what you've learned in the last week and you know just your knowledge of the industry, 
Where are you expecting it? If we if we come back here and have this conversation in five years, how do you think the technology that's being developed today is going to change retail in the future? How should investors think about that? So back-end automation is a reality. You, you are not going to have as much or any human factor in warehousing. Uh, picking orders, all of that should be not it's not going to be 100% of robots probably not going to pack your order into the the final bag for say groceries but they're going to do an awful lot of it you're not going to see as much front of house anim- automation as you think consumers have shown some reticence to self checkout uh, they're fully aware of the bagger who's not getting employed when that so i think there's going to be limits to that and maybe there'll be some in store like help that's automated but for the most part you're going to see the back end get automated and you are going to see some level of inventory control uh, move to RFID and other methods where in a big chain like Walmart, you're already taking, there's no human who's going like, we need more Cheerios. Uh, you're going to see that become commonplace at pretty much every store as that technology uh, where you, that just baked into sort of your 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 Square or your uh, QuickBooks CMS or your your very basic models of 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 in-store uh, point-of-sale system. Yeah, I'll say as a consumer myself, all these developments are really exciting because to me, you know, you look at creating all this access to delivery and convenience and reducing waste, which is, you know, probably both good for the environment and, you know, lowering prices, which is great for me as a consumer. I'm really excited about all these new developments we're seeing with with both logistics and just enabling online ordering. I will say I'm a little bit skeptical about how much value this is going to create for investors. I think this is more going to be uh, something that creates consumer surplus more than it is for the producers. But what are your thoughts on that, Dan? So, if Amazon stamps out most of its competition and only has to worry about Walmart, Target, and a couple of other players, they can start raising prices. So, you want to see the ability for even if it's a niche player, even if it's you know a a company that sells high-end NFL-branded cigars, if they can have efficient delivery and sourcing and all of the back-end things, and I recognize that that's a preposterous example of a company, instead of you going to Amazon and buying sort of a low-end version of that product, and that company doesn't have to charge you $39.99 for shipping because they can say, you want it tomorrow, $29.99. You want it in three days, $15.99. You're willing to wait till whenever, $2.99. All of that technology was on display at this show, and I think that will make the Amazons, Targets, Walmarts work harder, and they will really start to create some of the things we've talked about on this show, the the better methods of sizing you so you don't have to go into a store to buy a shirt, uh, the ability to tell me that that outfit I'm buying online is a poor choice for me uh, using sort of an AI system or whatever it is. I don't think if you... if you stop now and only the big players have access to this technology, you'd see a lot of small players go away and the big players would get fat and lazy. So at least this keeps it competitive. Right. And where, you know, where competition takes place, consumers a lot of times end up being the winner there. Dan, thanks so much for traveling out to Shop Talk and giving us your latest <laughs> thoughts. And uh, I was going to say, have you on sp- soon. speaking of winner, I will point out that Matt Franklin and I do a couple of these shows a year. And I have the damnedest luck of just like randomly hitting a slot machine, which I almost never play. So I'd be more than happy to get sent to, you know, as as long as Matt's coming, more than happy to go to some more of these Vegas-based shows. 
Hey, you know, I, you won't have to drag my arm to get out there either, Dan. <laughs> so uh, may, maybe we'll do that one of these times and can create uh, some it, nice content. Industry focused live from Vegas. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Dan, thank you for joining us once again and looking forward to having you on again soon. Thank you. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Dan Klein, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.